0: Brothers and sisters, once again we come to uh, this passage, uh, Colossians chapter one, verses nine through fourteen. Uh, the passage that uh, at the beginning of the year I said that we would um, uh, preach through this passage one Sunday, huh? <laughs> but as it has turned out, uh, it uh, will be five full Sundays getting through verses nine through fourteen. So let's let's prayerfully read this passage of. The book of Colossians, the very word of God. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, willing pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Once more, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we actually pray right now very specifically with regards to this passage and the work of your Holy Spirit uh, to open up to us your truth in ways that not only do we comprehend it, but in ways that make uh, the things that are spoken of here so deeply attractive to us as believers, that we would find ourselves wanting to live out in our own lives, uh, the truths and ideas and the content and the principles which the Apostle Paul is praying about, that we would desire to be Christians, receptive of your word, eager to do the things that are good, desiring to honor you as our Lord and God, and also desiring to be useful and fruitful to you in this world that you've given to us to live in. And so we pray for these things. We pray for your blessing upon our hearing, uh, blessing upon our believing, and blessing upon our obeying this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to mention once again that the title is The Summation of the Christian Life in Five Points. But we could also say that um, the very topic that we're looking at today in terms of the model of the Christian life, that we could have titled this entitled this whole series, Uh, The model of the Christian life in five points, because really everything we're going to say is in some sense speaking to what does the Christian life look like. Now, I want to begin by saying, though, that there are five things which every life needs, but only the Christian faith actually gives those five things. I'm going to say to you that the five things are the very things that the Apostle Paul prays for five essential aspects. Of our lives and five things which sum up the Christian life, five things which really give us a full model of what the Christian life is all about. I've also taken the approach to what Paul prays here of setting up a contrast between what the Bible teaches about our lives, about these things as followers of Christ, over and against what the current cultural narrative says about similar kinds of things with respect to personal identity and purpose. How the cultures focus is all about the centrality of the self. Uh, Your personal guidance, for instance, comes from your inner self. Your, Your sense of morality and mission comes from your inner self. And if you're ever in a position to counsel another person, you tell them to listen to their inner self, to listen to their heart, to listen to what their heart would be telling them, to what they're feeling, to let the inner truth guide them. But of course, If you think about where we are in Western culture today, post-Christian, post-reason, post-modern, that's the flow of the Western culture over the last 120 years or so. When you think about this, where else could they turn? Uh, Everything that would give them the Judeo-Christian perspective as a moral compass upon life has been overturned. Everything that might say science or reason can tell you how to live the satisfying, fulfilling, happy life, that's been overturned. Uh, reason did not become the proper, reason and science did not become a good replacement for the Judeo Christian perspective. That's the consensus of Western culture today. So now here we are with postmodern thinking. There's nothing that can be given to anyone within our culture as a true compass with respect to life, except this. You're supposed to act, you're supposed to function as a compass unto yourself. Now, we as believers ought to look at this, and we ought to have genuine compassion upon our fellow human beings. They are much like what Jesus noted when he fed the 5,000, They are like sheep without a shepherd. That ought to evoke from us genuine compassion. Because our fellow human beings are lost. They are so very, very lost in this way. On the other hand, as Christians, we possess genuine God-revealed truth. Genuine God-revealed principles. And they're found in the very things that the Apostle Paul prays for in this prayer. We have the ultimate compass to guide and guard our lives. We have this in the Bible. It's the Christian's ultimate manual for all of life. And we have the clear command unto whom we owe the highest loyalty. in that we are to live our lives to please the Lord Jesus in every respect. To love him above all else. And that's the mandate, which we lovingly desire to follow. And we have the clearest commission given to us, which is to live a life of service to all other human beings in every good work in fulfillment of the second greatest commandment. This is our mission throughout all of life. Now further, we have so very much in the New Testament that tells us what the wholeness of the Christian life is supposed to look like. That is to say, various descriptions and examples of all of the essentials of living out the Christian life. And in Paul's prayer here, in this section that begins with the end of verse 10 and then moves through the beginning of verse 12, Paul gives us a brief but accurate description of what I have labeled as the model of the Christian life. Now, I've said in a larger sense... This, this, whole, this whole prayer is a model of the Christian life. But here we find, as it were, a model within a model. The, the very specific thing that Paul would want us to understand in terms of what is the Christian life supposed to look like. Because a model is a replica of something. And a model is often a, a scaled-down version of something. A model is actually something we look at that enables us to see the bigger picture. Now, I thought about this in terms of my first trip to a planetarium. Um, There there was a model of the solar system, and it was done somewhat to scale. Uh, You couldn't do it fully to scale. You can't put a model of the solar system inside almost any building fully to scale, right? Because the solar system itself is so huge. But they tried to give you a picture so that you could envision what the solar system itself would look like. You know, the, the sun a million times larger than the earth, and then these incredibly large distances and so forth, a model to envision it, something smaller to be able to see something much larger. Or think about aviation art. Now, our brother Cam has introduced me to aviation art in lots of different ways over the last several years. But one of the things I found so interesting is that almost every one of the aviation artists who... Uh, draw or paint airplanes, use plastic models, exact plastic models right in front of them in order to do their paintings. And so these small replicas become faithful guides in order how to paint these you know, incredibly huge pieces of aircraft. So what Paul has given us here is a model. It's it's how we are to envision key parts of the Christian life. And we can use this model that Paul gives us here to paint the portrait or the landscape of our own lives, looking at Paul's succinct replica of the Christian life. And in doing so, in this sort of model within a larger picture of the Christian life, there are three things that ought to stand out to us of paramount concern. Paul's going to speak about the person of God. He's going to speak about the process of growth. He's going to speak about the perspective of gratitude. Those basic elements. And we find them delineated beginning at the end of verse 10, where Paul speaks of increasing in the knowledge of God, and then verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, which is spiritual growth and living out the Christian life. And then at the end of verse 11 and into verse 12, with joy, giving thanks to the Father. The reason being, it's the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we have these three phrases, which, when you expand them, state three very significant ideas about the Christian life. First, with respect to the person of God, What Paul is praying for is that we would progress in our knowledge of God biblically and experientially. And then secondly, with respect to this process of growth, he's praying that we would persevere through all the difficulties and troubles and trials of this this life in this fallen world. And then with respect to the perspective of gratitude, Paul is praying that we would possess an attitude of joyful salvation because of the gift of our salvation. So again, this this model succinctly focuses upon three things. The person of God, the process of growth, and then the perspective of gratitude. So it's it's not unusual that we would begin a model of the Christian life by focusing upon the person of God. That's got to be the first concern. The first concern in terms of our Christian life ought to be that we would progress in our knowledge of God biblically and experientially. And so that's really what Paul is praying when he prays that we would increase in the knowledge of God for any biblical model of the Christian life, that would need to be of first importance. For instance, if you or I were asked, especially if I were asked, what is the Christian life all about? I would answer with the title of J. I. Packer's most famous book, Knowing God. The Christian life is all about knowing God in a personal way through faith in Christ, who was the only begotten Son of God. Now, I mentioned Packer's book because of even why it is so famous. It has been credited as being the best treatment in the past half century of really what it means to know God. Any book outside the Bible, Packer's book, has been regarded as the very best means to come to understand what it means to really know God. So many Christians have been blessed and benefited by coming to know and understand how God is always supposed to be at the very center of our lives and that the knowledge of Him is the most prized knowledge. The, the, the take-off text that, that Packer actually uses this is from Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and verse 24. So listen to these two verses that that Packer says are so significant with respect to this concept and thesis of knowing God. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So Packer's basic thesis is this. What ought to be first and foremost about our Christianity is that we know God and that we are growing in this knowledge of God. And this is what Paul prays for, that we would know the person of God and keep increasing in our knowledge of God. But what does that mean? What is this knowledge of God that Paul refers to? Well, we can make a very important distinction between knowledge about God and knowledge of God. For instance, think about your sources of your knowledge about God. First, it ought to be the Bible, right? Reading and studying the Bible, uh, putting together what the Bible has to say about God, that would, in fact, if you're doing everything right, give you the right conception of God, the right understanding of God, the right information of God, the right theology of God. Now, you can take a shortcut, too. Skip the Bible. Just read the Westminster Confession of Faith and its chapters about God and just read the larger Catechism and its questions and answers about God and just read the shorter Catechism likewise or just take an excellent uh, systematic theology like that of Louis Berkhof. Just read those sections about God and you could wind up with a robust understanding of the biblical view of God. But that knowledge about God would be spiritually useless if it's not tightly coupled with and integrated into the knowledge of God, the knowledge that comes from personally knowing God in and through a personal relationship with Christ. Packer, in one of his writings, says this, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. Packer's saying that unless we actually know God personally, we can't be fruitful in this knowledge about God. Because here's the truth. It is totally possible for a person to study the biblical teachings about God and to do so without abiding in Christ it is very possible to read the Bible academically without reading the Bible personally. To read the Bible personally, this is to read it in the presence of God. This is to read the Bible prayerfully. This is to read the Bible as the primary means of of actually possessing communion and fellowship with Christ. It is to read the Bible for the purpose of hearing the voice of God speaking to our hearts and minds and speaking to our lives. Now, this is the way, the the only way, that we can actually grow and have progress, as we should, in our knowledge of God. And so Packer asked this question. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? And then he answers, the rule for doing this is simple, but demanding. I'm going to say that again. I thought this was quite an insight on Packer's part. The rule for doing this is simple, but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God in a matter or meditation before God leading to prayer and praise to God. And what he means by this, this is to make Bible reading a matter of coming before God and coming to God with with a prayer that as we read God's word, that God would, in the Apostle Paul's own language, fill us with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That God would, as Jesus said, sanctify us by the truth, his word is truth. That God's word would deepen our trust in him. That we would know and understand God and his ways. Now, in the practical sense then, this first part of this small model of the Christian life, centered in the person of God, points to daily time with God, with Christ, in Bible reading and prayer. To increase in our knowledge of God means we need to seek daily communion with Christ through his word and prayer. Psalm 119, verse 103 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, in commenting on this particular verse, uh, the great London pastor, the 19th century pastor, the great one, Charles Spurgeon, gives this illustration. He says, You can hear at a great distance by means of the telephone, but somehow I do not think that anyone will invent an electric taster. Nobody knows what may be done, but I imagine that I will never be able to eat anything in New York, meaning being at a distance in London. I think that we will hardly ever reach such a triumph of science as that. There will always have to be a measure of nearness if we are to taste anything. And so it is with God's word. If we hear it, it's music to the ear. But still, it may be a distance from us. We may not get a grip and grasp of it, but if we taste it, that means that we really have it here within ourselves. Then it has come very near to us, and we enter into fellowship with the God who gave it. And Spurgeon's point is this. We need to read the Bible personally in order that we might taste it directly, in order that we might have fellowship with the God who gave it and increase and grow in our purge of Him. Surely this is why the book of Psalms begins with commending the man who is in the Word of God daily. In Psalm 1 verse 2, The law of the Lord is his delight. The law is meditation night and day. So the first aspect of this this replica of the Christian life focuses upon the person of God with an understanding that we are to increase in our knowledge of him. And the very means to do so is through the word of God. But here's an important point. This isn't law. It's grace. There isn't some 11th and 12th and 13th commandments that essentially say, pick up your Bible every day. Now open up your Bible and read it every day and pray while you're reading it. No. This is an invitation from a sovereign God, an invitation of grace that God desires to bless us and to grow us and the knowledge of himself, because there is no greater happiness for the true Christian than to know the God he serves. Now, the second aspect of this model concerns this process of growth. So looking again at verse 11, we see that the Apostle Paul prays that he would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. Basically, Paul is praying that we would persevere through all the difficulties of life in this fallen world and that our spiritual growth involves this process of perseverance, which involves endurance, which involves patience. Now, this second aspect then of this this small model of Christian life requires that we have a right view of life in the smaller world. So I want us to reflect upon what Moses has to say about this. He's the author of Psalm 90. So I'm going to read what he says in verse 10. He says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. We need to think about life as toil and trouble. Any of us who are near this 70 or 80 year mark that Moses speaks about can look back over our lives in the United States and we can remember far better, far easier times for us as Christians. But America has changed, America has secularized. Uh, Aaron Wren, a writer, describes this in his recent article in First Things. He notes that in the 1960s, even into the mid-1990s, Christianity was still seen as a positive presence within the American culture. But then from the mid-1990s to about 2014, the attitude shifted. Culture took more of a neutral stance toward Christianity. The Christian faith was neither favored nor disfavored. But since about 2015, and he points to the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court, the gay marriage decision, the secular view about Christians and Christianity is essentially negative. The Christian faith is seen more as a problem for society rather than as a force for good. Now back to Moses. When Moses described life as toil and trouble, he had lots of examples connected to the ancient world and the children of Israel coming out of slavery and all of the troubles and and, and toil that they experienced in their desert wanderings. And even their gaining of the promised land was going to be difficult. It was going to be very hard. And Christians in America. Moving forward, we must see that Part of the toil and troubles of life are going to be tied to a culture that has rejected Christian morality and the Bible as authoritative, which rejects the Christian vision of life as the best way to live. Now, we may still have a decent standard of living, but we will not automatically be favored because we're sincere practitioners of the life of Christ. We are moving again into an era that resembles more closely the rest of the world and the majority of the cultures of the world where the Christian faith is a minority faith. We are once more more likely to see and to experience what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are once more more likely to see and to experience the words of Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. These thoughts, this perspective, is very important in light of Paul's petition. In verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. This is not a prayer and this is not advice for those who are destined to live easy life lives. This is advice. This is a prayer for those whose lives are going to be difficult, where there is going to be toil and trouble. And the truth is that for the past 2,000 years of the Christian faith, most Christians have lived under conditions in which life every day was something of toil and trouble. We love the book Pilgrim's Progress but we easily forget John Bunyan's life. In 1660 he was imprisoned, which lasted 12 years because he had dared to preach as someone who was not credentialed by the Church of England. So his preaching outside of the established church supposedly broke the law. Now, a promise to the civil magistrate that he would not preach would have secured his release. But in fact, throughout this difficult stretch of time, he refused to take his freedom at the cost of disobedience to Christ. Rather, by the grace of God, he was strengthened with all power from Christ. According to the glorious might of Christ, for all endurance and patience during those dozen years. And there was great evidence of God's strengthening grace in his life. It was during the last five years in prison that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Now here is what this part of the the model of the Christian life teaches us. First, while we live in this world, we will experience toil and trouble. It may be in the form of health setbacks. It may be in the form of financial reversals. It may be family brokenness. It may be people acting to hurt us. Some who may claim to be Christians, yet they're acting against us. Some who may be secularists, who think that Christianity is a harmful religion. In any case, as Jesus has said, in this world we will have tribulations. We must have this correct understanding of the world. But then Paul's prayer teaches us to seek this strengthening of Christ in our lives. For the grace that enables us to persevere and to endure with patience all the toils and troubles that we are bound to face. The very process of growth as Christians is in the midst of the tribulations that we are going to experience in this world. So we're called by this prayer of the Apostle Paul. We are called here to find our strength in our relationship with Christ so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. And because of what Paul said earlier, we can say, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to the day of Christ Jesus, from chapter 1, verse 6. To help us, it is an excellent, excellent course of reading, to read the biographies of great missionaries and people of the faith in church history. Their lives are stories of being strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of Christ for all endurance and patience because of the incredible nature of the toil and trouble that they endured. Returning to the wisdom of Packer, he says this. God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day the weaker we feel the harder we lean and the harder we lean the stronger we grow spiritually even while our bodies waste away to live with your quote thorn unquote uncomplainingly that is sweet patient and free in heart to love and help others, even though every day you feel weak, is true sanctification. It is true healing for the Spirit. It is a supreme victory of grace. I want to say that this model of the Christian life here, this second aspect of this model, is very promising because it takes a truly realistic look at life. And it tells us, because this is what the Apostle Paul is praying for, that God has designed His grace to work in us. The grace that He's given us. The grace that we need to persevere and in order to grow. That we have all sufficiency in our relationship in Christ to endure all things that come in into our lives. Now, the third part of this model that Paul gives us here is the perspective of gratitude. We're to possess an attitude of joyful gratitude for the gift of our salvation. We see this in the first part of verse 12. With joy, giving thanks to the Father. And the thanks to the Father is because of salvation, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And Paul prays, that we would all possess an attitude of joyful gratitude for this gift of our salvation. Now, a number of years ago, I was reading a, a John Stott commentary on the book of Ephesians on chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14, is, that, is perhaps the greatest salvation passage that we can find in all of the New Testament. And there Paul describes our salvation completely from the standpoint of all that God has done. God the Father is the one who's the author and giver of salvation. God the Son is the one who accomplishes the work of salvation. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that salvation. And John Stott, commenting on this passage, draws this application. He says, every Christian, every day, ought to give thanks to the Father for the gift of salvation. Every day. A day of gratitude for what God the Father has done for us. And the reasons are in what Paul prays for. It is God who has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his own son. So we see in verse 12 here, the Father is the giver of salvation. It's the Father who's qualified us. He's given us the inheritance of the saints in light. Eternal life, but even the privilege of being raised up with Christ to share in his eternal inheritance, to share that heavenly place with Him the glory. But the main point is that it's the Father who's qualified us for this eternal glory. But that emphasizes the fact that salvation is a gift, entirely a gift, all of grace. We bring nothing to this matter of the Father fully qualifying us to have this inheritance. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 So the proper attitude is that of thanksgiving. Salvation. That salvation we possess entirely the gift of God. Not as a result of our works. So there's nothing we can ever boast about but rather the giving of thanks. And Paul points to how this is connected with joy. With joy giving thanks. The possession of the greatest thing that has the greatest value that we can never lose ought to give us the greatest sense of joy. Which is why Paul states this succinctly first Thessalonians five sixteen to eighteen. In light of everything that God has done for us in Christ, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If God has given you that which is most infinitely valuable, which ought to fill our hearts with joy we can be thankful for every lesser thing that is that, that is good that's come into our life we can rejoice in everything because we rejoice the fact that god has given us that which is greatest and that which he'll never take away now this is a replica a small model of the Christian life. All things we find in this prayer reflect what the Christian life is supposed to look like. All five of these main ideas are things that we need need to understand, comprehend, define, circumscribe, circumscribe, provide boundary lines, definitions of what the Christian life is all about. It's the summation of the Christian life in five points. But at this particular point, the focus is upon the person of God called to increase in our knowledge of him as we go through the Christian life. And the process of growth, the realistic view of the world and life is that of toil and troubles, and yet the all-sufficiency of the grace by which God would strengthen us to persevere, perspective of gratitude, fully understanding that we've contributed nothing to our salvation, It's the Father who has given it all to us, qualified us for it, given it to us as a gift. And then contrast what we have and who we are with the lostness of the world. And let that evoke compassion for those who do not know God through Christ. But for us, then, to rejoice, to give thanks in all things. Because of Jesus, because of the gift of salvation, because of the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what Paul prays for, inspired by your spirit to pray these things. Because that tells us that these things are promised to us. And clearly what Paul prays for, your spirit has inspired him to pray for so we know that the spirit and the son together and their intercession for us likewise prays for these things. Help us then to embrace them so deeply. Give us a heart's desire to know you more deeply, Father. Give us the strength to understand that everything we need to deal with the toils and troubles of life, you will supply by our abiding in Christ and trusting in him. And then, Father, remind us, our joy ought to be in you because of all that you've done for us with the gift of salvation. Lord, help us to model these things faithfully to your glory in our lives in Jesus name amen